0: hello and welcome on behalf of cme outfitters i would like to welcome and thank you for joining us for the final activity in a series of four cmeo snacks titled managing cardiovascular risk in patients with narcolepsy now this cmeo snack series is supported by an independent medical education grant from jazz pharmaceuticals i'm dr richard bogan I am an associate clinical professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia, South Carolina, and the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm also the principal of Bogan Sleep Consultants, LLC, in Columbia, South Carolina. I am exceptionally pleased to be joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. Anne-Marie Morse.
1: I'm Anne-Marie Morse, and I am an associate professor at Geisinger. Commonwealth School of Health Sciences. I'm also the Director of Child Neurology and Pediatric Sleep Medicine at Geisinger Weiss Children's Hospital in Danville, Pennsylvania.
0: Thank you, Anne-Marie, for being here today. I'm, I'm excited to hear your discussion and to frame the discussion today, let me review our learning objective. Our goal is that after this CME snack, you'll be able to initiate or, where appropriate, switch treatment plans for narcolepsy patients and consider the cardiovascular comorbidities, dosing, and titration strategies of medications that might have an effect on the heart. So um, let's begin today by discussing the CV-Bond study, anne This study actually was interesting. It is observational. Uh, we have to remember that in describing the cardiovascular dysfunction found in patients with narcolepsy.
1: So, if you have joined us in some of our earlier snacks, hopefully you're not getting too full just yet because we have a lot more to dig into. But if you did look at some of our earlier snacks, what you're going to find is a common theme of that we really want to take an approach at looking at the whole person when they're experiencing the symptoms of narcolepsy. And the reason for that is because of the fact that we are having increasing knowledge of understanding beyond the symptoms of narcolepsy, what else may they be at risk for, and what other things are they experiencing in their journey over time. So the CV bond data is looking at a retrospective analysis of health claims data, where there is an evaluation of individuals who have narcolepsy in a comparison to a non-narcolepsy cohort. And so in this population, it is primarily looking at commercial insurances with a small component of it being Medicare insurances. We see that this... Population represents 67% female. When looking at this and understanding that we've already reviewed all the different quality of life aspects and other comorbidities that may occur in individuals with narcolepsy, it's important to understand that this particular study was really trying to dig down on, is there any evidence based on claims data that there may be a higher likelihood for cardiovascular outcomes to be at risk? And so with this study, we see that stroke, heart failure, and any other cardiovascular disease may be higher likelihood for individuals who have narcolepsy. This becomes highly relevant because we do know that we've seen other risk factors for these types of outcomes as well, like obesity and obstructive sleep apnea. So thinking about this and the totality of our approach to how we should treat individuals and what we should be looking for really becomes part and parcel of every single visit we should be having.
0: Yeah, I think you, you pointed out, I mean, not only do, do we see mood disturbance, disrupted nocturnal sleep, but we can see other sleep disorders and obesity. Uh, all of these are factors. And so this is not really cause and effect, but it is important. It's real world. And I think we have to be uh, cognizant that, that these individuals do appear to be at increase in risk for some of this. And of course, we use medications that have an effect on the cardiovascular system. Um, so. We also have guidelines from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine in terms of what medicines are recommended. So I would like for you to review that and talk about some of the cardiovascular risks.
1: Sure. So in 2021, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine did set out some great guidelines to give us guidance around what medications might be most optimal to consider first. When looking at the European guidelines, they also offer some prescriptive recommendations in regards to when should we consider what medications. In general, we typically are thinking about alerting agents or oxidative medications as some of our first-line options for consideration. However, with all this, we always want to be thinking about whether or not there's any innate risks or problems that we need to consider when offering these treatments. So some of the top ones that we might think about include modafinil and as alerting agents. These medications most typically are working on our dopamine system, enhancing that in the brain in order to enhance the amount of alertness that an individual may be experiencing. However, some specific clinical considerations you need to have with modafinil is that they may decrease hormonal therapies, including things like contraceptive use. It is further compounded that we also know that most recent studies are showing that modafinil also can cause teratogenesis in an infant as they're developing. And so therefore, that could be potentially a risky combination, especially when we're seeing in this claims data, 67% are represented by female. And in our last SMAC, we had seen that 83% were represented in the Nexus Registry as being female. So maybe something to be mindful of. In terms of the cardiovascular impact, because it's an alerting agent, it can increase blood pressure and heart rate. And so therefore you may wanna be mindful of that as you watch them over time. Silvery similarly, we want to be cautious with, um, as it may increase blood pressure and heart rate. And although we're illustrating that you want to be mindful of psychosis and bipolar disorder in this particular medication, it is really important to call out that for any of the medications that we utilize in the treatment of narcolepsy, we always want to be mindful about any mental health risks. We're acting on the brain, and so therefore it's something that we need to think about when thinking about psychiatric comorbidity. And then finally, sodium oxybate. The, the theoretical mechanism of action is that it's exerting its effect on the GABA-B receptors at noradrenergic and dopaminergic neurons. And so this is a CNS depressant, and it does contain a high sodium content. This is an oral solution that requires twice-nightly no, dosing. When reflecting on some of the recommendations by the American Heart Association, we do think about sodium as well as all other nutritional intake as things that may potentially be modifiable for cardiovascular risk.
0: Yeah, I think um, I'm impressed. You know, most of the alerting agents have an effect on the sympathetic tone. So, of course, when we're awake, we have an increase in sympathetic tone and an increase in parasympathetic tone when we're asleep. So... Here is the potential of cardiovascular effects, as well as what you mentioned, the CNS effects. And then I'm impressed with the sodium load that you can get with sodium oxabate. I mean, if you're taking nine grams of sodium oxabate, which is, you know, six to nine grams is a customary dose, you could get up to 1.6 grams of sodium per day. And of course, and now we have a, a low sodium, but there are some other medications some of which may not have quite the effect on the sympathetic nervous system, dolosan being one of those. Can you talk about those?
1: Sure. So patolosan is a unique offering in terms of the treatment landscape in narcolepsy because it does treat excessive daytime sleepiness and cataplexy. Some of the can also treat excessive daytime sleepiness and cataplexy. However, this is the only non-controlled substance that we have as an offering for the treatment. Now, with that stated, it, is, falls, it does fall into the alerting agent category. Um, however, it has a very unique mechanism of action by enhancing the amount of histamine that is available in the brain through an antagonist inverse agonist mechanism. We do have a scheduled increase on week after week, starting about 8.9 grams, then in the second week going up to 17.8 milligrams, and then finally, for some, may increase to a total of 35.6 milligrams daily. It is important to recognize, however, that that titration schedule may be limited by other medications that a person may be taking. For instance, if they're taking strong CYP2D6 inhibitors, um, or CYP3A4 inducers, you may have differential um, planning in regards to that titration schedule. This is a relatively cardiovascular-neutral medication, except for the fact that there may be a worsening of a prolonged QT interval if that is pre-existing. So it is always recommended to please get an EKG before considering the start of this medication.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's an important medication. I, I tell um, others that it's You know, it's affecting the governor of histamine release. And histamine is a really important neurotransmitter, a monoamine that enhances wakefulness. So it works through that particular process. You also have the issue of the birth control with that as well. Um, We talked about sodium oxabate. Um, Now we have the low sodium oxabate.
1: So low sodium oxabate is a medication that does have FDA approval in children and adults seven years and older for the indication of narcolepsy and can be used for treatment of excessive daytime sleepiness or cataplexy. The mechanism of action is that it is a calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium salt of gamma hydroxybutyrate, and it again is exerting its effects on the GABA-B receptors. For individuals who have narcolepsy, they may be initiated at 4.5 grams nightly and divided into two doses and then titrated to the recommended therapeutic effect of six to nine grams. For some individuals who are already on sodium oxybate, you could potentially uh, transition them to low sodium oxybate in a one-to-one ratio. So if they're on six grams and a divided dose, you can then transition them also to six grams and a divided dose. There are some other clinical considerations. Such as that it may present a neutral cardiovascular profile. It does have less sodium than sodium oxabate with 131 milligrams and its nine gram dose, um, but it is also a CNS depressant.
0: We've talked about these medications and they are very beneficial, the effect size in terms of improving excessive daytime sleepiness, reducing the RAM dissociative symptoms, improving cataplexy. But you've also talked about the side effects, but What do we do to reduce this higher risk of cardiovascular disease in narcolepsy patients?
1: So I think it's really important that when we have any individual who has narcolepsy in front of us, first and foremost, it's always very important to personalize the treatment to the person in front of you. Um, You do want to take into consideration their personal cardiovascular risk factors as well as any pertinent family history. The next thing is to look at what are other modifiable cardiovascular risk factors that may be present. And this can be multifactorial, everything from smoking, physical activity, weight loss, diet, including carbohydrate intake, sodium intake, and any other things that could potentially aggravate that cardiovascular risk profile. When we look at the fact that individuals with narcolepsy have a multitude of things that they may be potentially at risk for in terms of medical and psychiatric comorbidity, it only makes sense for us to continue to empower them with other things that may be within their control to modify. And so helping them to optimize their treatments with use of medications and combining it with many behavioral strategies that get them on the move and optimizing what they're putting in their mouth is really a strategy that many patients are falling just back hands
0: off. Yeah, we discussed sodium intake as being a modifiable risk factor. And the thing that impresses me, if you reduce sodium intake by a thousand milligrams, you can see a signal, a cardiovascular signal and a blood pressure signal. And you've already talked about um, low uh, octavate molecule, and it's the same active moiety. Um, but let's look at a recent real world study regarding patients transitioning from sodium oxabate to the lower sodium oxabate.
1: Sure. So there was a study done by the pharmaceutical company who um, actually creates these medications to better understand what the patient experience looks like and whether or not individuals who are on sodium oxabate transitioning to low sodium oxabate had a high acceptance or satisfaction with that transition. And so there was a study that looked at 85 patients, 45 with narcolepsy type 1 and 40 with narcolepsy type 2, which really gives a nice representation of both forms of narcolepsy. With the median age being 40, and again, us seeing that it's a high percentage of a female population. The mean time on sodium oxidate was about 57.8 months. So not a short stint. What we had found is that 84% of individuals who were switching from sodium oxabate to low sodium oxabate had stated that it was extremely easy, not difficult at all, or easy. 95% stated lower sodium content as the main reason for their switching, and 46% stating that fewer cardiovascular risk components was also a reason for switching. When we look at the um, uh, standard evaluation of what the perceived satisfaction in regards to the treatment using the TSQM version 2, we see that overall there was great global satisfaction with the medication change as well as with its effectiveness, side effects, and convenience after the transition.
0: Yeah, Emory, you've you've talked about a lot of this already, but um we're going to end the program at this moment, but um but would you kind of wrap up in terms of managing patients with narcolepsy who have comorbidities, such as cardiovascular disease?
1: Sure. So one of the things that you do want to take into consideration is dosing a patient who already has cardiovascular disease risk or actual cardiovascular disease, as well as titrating a patient who has cardiovascular disease risk or cardiovascular disease. This is going to come into play for a variety of medications that we're utilizing. And so being mindful as to whether or not we're further aggravating that risk or that pre-existing disease. If so, making sure we're making that balance. We want to look at what is the safety as well as the efficacy. So trying not to cut off our nose despite our face. And then finally, having some very specific considerations around switching therapies if we are identifying that there is increased risk for the individual who's in front of you. As a reminder, making it very important to personalize the therapy to the individual who you're treating right there in front of you and not just making a blanket statement of all or nothing for everyone.
0: Yeah, I think um in, in, uh, from what you said I mean, and me as well, I mean, I'm, I take a preventive course in terms of managing patients. So who are you and what do you have, but also what you might have? And I, I think that affects my therapy. What do you think?
1: 100%. I think that that is permeates across all of medicine is that we're trained to be able to understand who's the person in front of me and what are the things that I have to think about in order to prevent disease. We all take the Hippocratic oath to say we first do no harm. So making sure that we are really having a goal that is aligned with what the patient's goals are and optimizing their overall health and preventing disease when we can.
0: Yeah. I completely agree with. Well, Thank you, Dr. Morris. I think this has been an exceptional finale to the series, and I hope everyone in the audience learned a lot today. Let's summarize with our SMART goals, which are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That is, what we hope that our audience will take from this presentation is to apply your practice, utilize clinical data on cardiovascular outcomes for patients with narcolepsy when shaping treatment decisions, For patients who may be at risk for cardiovascular disease. Characterize the different treatments for narcolepsy based on clinical considerations and cardiovascular impact to optimize balanced efficacy and safety decisions. Also, consider real-world studies and discussion on prescribing, dosing, and titrating of narcolepsy treatment when creating treatment plans that mitigate cardiovascular risk in your, in your patients. So this CMEO snack is one of a four-part series. We hope that you'll take advantage of all of the short and focused activities in the series. So I really want to thank you all for attending, and I especially want to thank Dr. Anne-Marie Morse for joining me today and giving this excellent discussion.
1: Thank you so much for including me, Dr. Fogan. This has been a pleasure.